whomever is feeding them today. I want to invite you to go to a very, very important and crucial passage in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Excuse me, I'm so sorry. I should have turned the mic off. It is allergy season. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that your spirit would take your word now. Lord, it is his sword. God, please use my feeble attempt at this passage to encourage your people. And Lord, I pray that you would use it to the saved and those that are yet to be believers alike. And we trust you and thank you that it won't return void. Thank you that you are so gracious to meet us in our idolatry and guide us to the risen Christ. And we thank you for this in advance in Christ's name. Amen. I will in no way do justice to this passage and there is so much in here and there is not only a world history lesson in the background of this passage but also a lot of philosophy. There's like a whole semester of a philosophy class in the background of this section of scripture that we're going to look at this morning as well. And so um, all that to say there's a lot more here than you're going to get in the next however many minutes I take to be quiet, okay? Um, Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Again, we're in Paul's second missionary journey. There's some uh, pictures that we showed last week of his second missionary journey as he is going through Macedonia, and we left off last week with him in Thessalonica and then in Berea, and we saw the two different responses of those two cities. And he left there, Uh, After those Jews had come and were stirring up things in Berea again following there and he went down to Athens. And then in Athens, uh, Timothy and Silas stayed behind and later came to him. And we see this episode here in in, um, at the end of Acts chapter 17. So Paul visits Athens here and there's two sections to this. Uh, He witnesses there in the marketplace and then his uh, interaction with them and reasoning with them in the marketplace led to an invitation to a public address at the Aragopolis. And so his reasoning there in the marketplace led to that public presentation there in verses 22 to 34. And so we see that going on here. And really what this gives us is is a question of cross-cultural communication. Have you ever been somewhere and you talk to someone and you realize that you're not on the same what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong to you is totally different to them. That with the foundation, you're, you're talking to someone and you're just like, well, the Bible says, and they're like, well, what's the Bible? And they, you know, there's not an, a foundation there of which to talk or even start. It's a totally different worldview. How do you speak in a, in a, with someone and has a different world, worldview or a different belief system? How do you relate to that type of culture? And the early church had to grapple with that, that just like we do. And we'll see a great example here in Paul and how that is. So Acts chapter 17, I'll begin reading in verse 16. This is God's word. 
Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit, his human spirit, was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. And so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. And some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Aragopolis, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious or superstitious. For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, or in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance by all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others says, we will hear you again about this. But Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is God's word. So how do we deal with cross-cultural communication? How do we present the gospel to someone who doesn't accept the authority of the Bible or the claims of Christianity or has a totally different worldview or value system, as we might say? And this, the early church had to grapple with this, and Paul gives us a great example of this. So this is one of the many sermons, uh, if you want to call it that, listed in the book of Acts. Um, he, we saw earlier in Acts a wonderful example of his sermons to a, a, either a Jewish uh, background audience or those that were God-fearers. Basically, they were Gentiles that had either believed in the God of Israel or that there was at least that biblical worldview in their back of their mind. But here we see an example of Paul reaching those that do not have that worldview. 
And so if you're a non-Christian today, I hope that as you hear what Paul says, that some of your questions about God, the Bible, things like that will be answered and that you, through the Holy Spirit opening your eyes, would, would believe this and that this would be such an awesome thing that the Holy Spirit would use Paul's words to you through me to bring you to believe on Christ. It would be a miracle, and we'd love to see that happen today. For those of you that already are believers, we can learn much about from Paul's pattern here, about how we can talk to people that are far from God or outside of the faith or think differently than us. There are many things here, but we've been ta- calling this title, this sermon series through Acts called A Church on the Move, because the, the church is, is not stationary, it's a movement, and you see this, uh, this going places, in fact, we're seeing this, this theme of being sent and sending, sent uh, over and over, repeated, that this is a movement, not a monument, it's not a museum, it's a movement, that the church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see the progress of the gospel from Jerusalem to Rome, and we see this stop-off here in Paul's second missionary journey here in Athens. And so I'm going to say that today, the title and the big idea is that a church on the move meets people where they are and leads them to Jesus. A church on the move meets people where they are and loves them too much to leave them there, but leads them to Jesus. So come just as you are, just as I am, without one plead, but that the gospel loves you too much to leave you there. And so we're going to see that in a few different things, four points about this this morning as we look at this, and again, I am not going to do justice to this passage. Uh, this, is, this is a deep one here, I'll do my best in the time we have. Um, so first, I want to see in verses 16 and 17 that how can a church on the move meet people where they are and lead them to Jesus? And the first thing I think we can see from Paul's pattern here is to recognize their culture and its idolatry and respond with a burden for it. Um, to recognize the culture, the idolatry of the culture, and, and be burdened for it. So it says there that pa- while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit's provoked. He's annoyed at what he's seeing because this city is full of idols. Now, this city is Athens. So let's go back and go back to your history class from school of what is Athens. Remember, Athens was that center of, of Greek philosophy. Now, this is going back several centuries, so we're back in like the 400 BCs, you know, Plato, Aristotle, and all this stuff going on, but now we're here in the first century AD, and Rome has come, so Rome's conquered here in the kind of the mid, that first part of the century there, and so Rome's here, so Athens is nothing, she ain't what she used to be, right? So Athens is nothing like what she used to be in her prime, but there's still this remnant. It is still very much a cultural center and intellectual. It's still very much, even in Roman, in, under Roman rule, very much the, the capital of intellectual thought in the world at the time. In fact, of all the different shrines, and this is on my bucket list to go to visit. Uh, is anyone, how many of you have been tourists and visited Athens? One, okay, I was guessing over here. Okay, and this sounds great. I, this on, but so I, I have done this through the lens of the internet and pictures on the internet and things like that. So, but anyway, so huge pictures and a lot of very famous sites and uh, shrines and ones, some that have been uh, tried to be restored and brought back. But of all the huge ones, there's, only, there's this one token one to Caesar. 
that uh, recognizing the Rome that 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 the uh, emperor that the the, the Caesar re- well worshipped as a savior even in, in stone calling him a savior um, that that recognized but he's there with all these other to these other Greek gods that of course are the the gods of mythology and uh, when we looked at some of the other cities even like Poseidon and some of the ones and of course we made that relevant with Disney a little bit and some of you that are looking forward to Aquaman and some of those things coming out all these things were still very much part of our thinking and culture uh, in in the um, Greek gods. But so it's an intellectual capital of the world. So we need to think of cities like that, like, you know, like Oxford, England, or Cambridge, or Geneva, or Harvard, or those other, uh, Boston with all of its colleges there in Boston area, or Princeton, or down in Duke and Raleigh-Durham area, or Stanford, or, you know, places like that, like Clarksburg, right? (laughs) Um, there's intellect. I'm joking. There's intellectual capital. This is very much, but but it's not just an intellectual capital. It's an it's it's, it's kind of the, the the capital for art, and also for athletics. Of course, you know that the the uh, uh, the, the, the um, on Mount Olympus and the sh- big shrine to Zeus and the Olympics having their birth here in Athens. And he sees here, he says that everywhere he goes, he says that I see you're very religious people. And that is the understatement that, that there are so many gods. In fact, one writer 50, visiting Athens 50 years after Paul would have heard said that there was, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Um, and right in the middle, there is this, uh, this great temple to Athena. And there's all these different gods that we could name all these different ones, different gods of this and th- that one. Um, and so then, um, uh, so we see this. So, so how are Christians to relate to that culture? And, he, and Paul is upset because he says this temple, this city is full of idols. And we're going to see this calling for them to repent of idolatry. And then the next couple chapters in, in Acts, uh, course he's going to uh, Corinth and then Ephesus, that this idolatry is one of his main things. And even when he writes to the Thessalonians, he says, how that you turn to God from idols, that part of their, our conversion when you accept Christ is turning to God from idols. And this is what's happening. So it's a lesson for us. How should Christians relate to culture? Paul is upset his spirits moved within him. And so how does he get upset about this? Well, because he knew what was in it. Uh, you, you only can get upset with culture if you know what's in it. If you're stored away in a monastery somewhere, you don't know what's going on. You know, there are sometimes I really like to not know what's going on in the world. Um, you know, it's like, oh, no, there's bad news. Turn the TV off, right? You know, and um, it's not, it doesn't look like it's not happening. It's still happening all around you. And sometimes I think the church is very guilty of this. It's like, all right, as long as everything in here is okay, forget about what is going on in the rest of the world. So sometimes we don't even know what to be upset about. But the irony is that, you know, we'll have a missionary come next Sunday. We will take on, a mission, churches will take on missionaries. Mission boards will send out missionaries. And what's the, one of the first things that that missionary will do when they go to the field? They will learn the language and the culture of that field. Sometimes they'll almost take a whole first term to do that. And do you know the sad thing is, is that some of those missionaries will learn more in a few months about the culture in their mission field then some of us will learn about the culture of our mission field in our entire lives. And that's a sad tell on me, on the church, on um, the American church. 
And we need to have missional goggles on and see the world through missionary lenses. And so, um, granted, there are many subcultures in America to take into account, and, and Appalachia being one of those subcultures, and then even of that subculture, you have sub-subcultures uh, of every community and nationality and descendants and things like that. But all of them, when you re- see culture, you see the idols of that culture. And culture just reflects the values of people that, that may be good, bad, whatever. And so culture is not a neutral thing. Sometimes we think, oh, cult, that's just their culture. Well, what if your culture is to like, you know, what about cultures where they kill their young and don't allow women to learn how to read? Is that okay? No, there, there are some relevant things. Okay, there's, there's some aspects to this. It's not just, you don't just say, well, my culture is good, their culture is bad because, you know, that's what I'm used to. And boy, that sounds really nice and tolerant, right? Um, and you can see where that goes. But what are the idols there? What are the idols of our culture? Do we get upset at the idols in our culture? Uh, Tim Keller said that you can look at what buildings in your city are the biggest and will usually be an indicator for you of what the city's idols are. So if you could look at what, what buildings in our town and our community are the biggest, the most well-funded, the nicest, the most well-taken care of, and you could probably get an idea of where the idols are and where the values are of the culture that we live in in our, our region, in our area. Uh, maybe that's sports or finance or comfort or entertainment. And that might be where the idols might lie for us. So how do we respond for, to that? How do we respond to the culture when we see idolatry in the culture? Well, there's usually a few different ways that Christians respond, and we've seen this throughout the story of the church. One is to get offended by it and run away. Dig a hole and stick your head in it. And pretend it's not there, and maybe buy a commune and separate yourself from it. And be as far away from it as possible. You know, don't shop at Walmart. Don't, you know, make sure you have a Christian car in a Christian house and a Christian everything, right? And you stay separated from the world as much as possible and you're just mad at it and you're you're mad at everything, you know? Um, And you don't even drive on the roads because there's probably an unsaved man that worked on it, right? And um, they haven't, you get offended. And you can see this tendency, I'm, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but um, you can see that tendency in Christians in some different various groups. The other extreme on the other side of the ditch is that you, how do you respond to idolatry in our culture is usually just being enamored by it, wanting to be accepted by it. But the third way that I think the gospel would drive us in biblical Christianity of a holy God who has a heart to reach people far from him and a kin, a, build a, nation, a, a kingdom from every people group would be to engage that culture for the sake of the gospel. So when you see those three options, be enamored by it or offended by it or engage in it, how do you respond? When you see our town pour millions of dollars into a facility or the school system put million dollars into a turf field or the university build a new this how do you respond you say well that might be showing some idolatry or 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 when you see um you know how people respond at the grammys or or when you're watching maybe the the christian the christian the country music awards 
you know, or the Doves, or whatever it is, or you're watching the Super Bowl, or how people respond when there's a huge concert, when there's a big headline or a big-name guy coming to town, whether that be at the amphitheater or in Morgantown or in Pittsburgh, and, man, everybody's just in an uproar. How do you respond when you see the idolatry of our culture? Well, I'm not saying it's not okay to be impressed by, like, wow, they built that huge thing, it really is state-of-the-art, and they got this great practice facility, and, man, that's really impressive. But is there something in your heart that's like kind of grieved that there's more glory going to basketball or football or a musician than there is going to the God of the universe? I mean, is there not something in there? It's like we're putting so much into a whatever facility while churches around our region are crumbling. Is there not something in there? There's the, the idolatry here that ought to stir something in you. What emotions fill your heart when you see the idols of our culture? When you turn it on and you're watching maybe the Country Music Awards or whatever that might be. Is there admiration? Oh, that's just so awesome. I want to go to that, conference, that, that concert. Wish I had backstage passes to that one. Is there like an awe? Or are you repulsed? I can't believe that our city council would allow them to come to this town. I'm going to write them a letter, you know. Um, Or is there a grief and a burden? And I'm going to say that if, if you're not provoked and grieved and heartbroken... When you see the sensuality, when you, when you see sensuality all over the, the school system and the town at a festival or at a concert, and you see the sensuality and the materialism of people just wanting stuff, or the pride, or even the nationalism, I mean, patriotism is a wonderful thing, and we applaud it, and we want to lead the way, but when there's a nationalism, when you see the worship of a nation, or you see the covetousness of people that they just want stuff, and they're lining up to get free stuff, if, if there is not something in you that's kind of provoked or grieved or like Paul says his spirit provoked within him then there's an old fundamentalist word that describes you and it's called being worldly that you're very at home in this world and we are not to be worldly these idols if they are very much at home in your heart then you may be a worldly Christian and so Christian are you comfortable in this world or is there something you're like, man, I've got, I've got like four generations of my heritage in these, in these hills, but there's still something in me that says this ain't home. That you're not made for this world. There's something there for us. But if your attitude, on the other hand, is this is all, it's done, it's, uh, it's terrible, you know, you know in, a, in a sense, to hell with it. All this, it's just debauched. That town, this town's done. It's over. I'm going to touch that thing with a 10 foot pole. Stay away from that place. And if your attitude's that as a Christian, then you probably don't understand the gospel very well. And the gospel really hasn't gripped you. So, how did Paul respond for it, to it? Not with enamor or extraction, but with engagement. So we can respond to culture with being enamored with it, extracting ourselves from it, 
or engaging it for the sake of the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul did. He, it says he reasoned with them. He's reasoned with them. He starts in the same place he always starts when he goes in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons and then in the marketplace every day with those that happen to be there. He's, we, we talked about this last time, his reasoning there at Berea and there. That he's, not, that he's, he's reasoning with them, not you know, being mean to at them. He's reasoning with them. And we observed that last time that in many of the churches, previous encounters and Paul's previous encounters in Acts, he's, he is, it's not, he is reasoning, explaining, proclaiming, persuading, arguing, alleging, drawing. He's not, he's not, this is not a doctrine. This is not some kind of indoctrination where it's this tyrannical instruction demanding uncritical acceptance. He is laying it out open for scrutiny, open for questions, open to ridicule. This is, a, this is why we would hold on a big level to a freedom of religion and a freedom of conscience. And as one, I think it was the ESV study Bible said that witnessing for Paul was that of patient persuasion. Patient persuasion. I love that little phrase. Patient persuasion. He's talking with them. He's reasoning with them. He dialogued. He reasoned with them. And many of us will get all ticked off and peeved at what's going on in the culture, but we're not dialoguing with anyone in it. I mean, you can yell all you want about you know, how the liberals are thinking this way and these millennials thinking this way and they don't do this, but are you actually talking to anyone? I'm, I'm being serious. And sometimes we can do this in church world, you know? These people that hold this view of the end times differently than I do or these people that hold this theological system differently than mine or this religious, are you actually talking to anyone who holds that? Because your attitude will change when, you're actually, when, you, when that's a real person. And it's just not someone in the back of a screen somewhere with, that you don't even know who they are. So I'm not talking about uh, Facebook fights. They don't count, right? Um, it's like discrediting liberal logic while breaking rules of logic yourself. Breaking rules of debate, logical fallacies, like straw man and ad hominem arguments. Not to mention going directly against the commands of Jesus for how Christians are to present themselves in communicating or all the wisdom of Proverbs about how you respond to certain people and how certain people are their contentiousness. Paul is not having that type of attitude. He's reasoning with them. That's, he's engaging the culture. And so how do you relate to our community's culture? How do we as a church relate to our community's culture? Are we enamored by it? Let's do whatever we can to be as much like the culture so that they'll think we're good and they'll come to church here then. Right? No. Or do we extract ourselves from the culture? Put a big wall up and have a fortress mentality. Check skirt length at the door before they come in. Right? Or do we engage it for gospel purposes? I hope that's how we'll have an attitude. How are Christians to relate to the culture? Be involved in it for the purpose of the gospel. Paul's cure for the culture, get this, was not social action, but gospel proclamation. I mean, that's how the kingdom's advanced. Not through political stuff or changing systems or, or bashing people or criticizing their ancestors or whatever, but giving the gospel out. J.D. Greer said it this way, we need to be people who are aware of our culture, able to dialogue with it, but are untainted by it. We need to be 
people who are aware of our culture, unable to dial, able to dialogue with it, but are untainted by it. So in order for others to understand our message, we need to know a little bit of where they're coming from, but we also need to be with the purpose of giving the gospel out. So Paul has that attitude towards the culture. It's number two. He engages, how do, we, how do we meet people where they are to bring them to Jesus? He engages the foundations, their foundations and worldview. Verse 18 says, and Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, well, What does this babbler wish to say? And others says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So when he says this babbler, He's saying those who pick things like a chicken would pick seeds. It's like kind of like you're a second-rate mind. You're just, you're just repeating something. You're not citing your sources. You're just repeating stuff you've heard. And so basically this. So is ever, it doesn't used to bother me when you're a Christian and you thought something through and then someone's like, ah, you don't really understand. You're not intellectual. You don't understand philosophy. And, the, and then you realize, you know what? That's exactly what they were doing to Paul. They've done that to Christians. I mean, that, that, just expect it. You might be first in your class, but if you claim to believe that the Bible's true and that what God said would actually happen and this is real, oh, you're ignorant. Oh, that's cute that you believe that. Oh, nice fairy tales. Oh, but us scholars, Dr. Snuffnose here, you know, would have, you know, or something like that, that like you're unread, you're a caveman, you know, you're some troglodyte, where you think it's the 1950s or something around here, you know. Um, you don't know anything about business or management or education or philosophy. Your educational standards are so subpar. We can't allow your students to come to our school because they had a textbook that actually believed what Genesis said was real, right? It was a, one, of the, one of the companies we use for textbooks here at Emmanuel. Uh, the California system of schools was denying admission to college to students that had gone to schools that use those textbooks and you know the irony was when they put the standards of their school system and tested the textbooks that those textbooks tested higher than their own textbooks that they used in their public school system on their own standards but still wanted to say oh this isn't real science you know um, even though we've changed our position 20 times in the last 30 years you know um, so anyway, the, what's this babbler wish to say? And then he says that they're the Stoics and Epicureans. Now, this is where our little philosophy lesson comes in. These really were two representatives of, the, of the, the, the main two philosophies of the day. Now, this goes back about 400 years prior, uh, a couple different philosophers, but then that had descended with some of the big names that you might know of, of Plato and Aristotle, who had popularized, and they had this disagreement over these two different philosophies. So the Epicureans, this would be what we would call the hedonists, and those were the, those that, that, that thought that God's really not concerned about this world. This is the sick at non. This is the here and now. This is what's here and now is all that matters. So live it up because God doesn't care, right? Uh, This is kind of that philosophy. And you can see this on a lot of philosophies of our day, right? Now, unless you think that these are like these, you know, just base and party animal, uh, the word Epicurean, when we have that word Epicurean today, it, it would be those that are like really have refined tastes, like the finest foods, the finest wines that really have an idea. And this is really where, I mean, there was still moderation in this, but it's really just, just enjoy the finer things of life and have all that. But live for the here and now because this is all that really matters. The other extreme was the Stoics, and these were kind of the purists. 
These were the ones that were like, you know, um, th- this was the, the philosophy. I, I don't know the Latin, but it was like the, what, what will be, will be. And you really can't do anything about what will be, will be. But what you can control is your attitude in it. And so these are the different groups that would, that they, they had this idea of imperturbability. Basically, you don't get perturbed about something. You can control your attitude. So this is the transcendental meditation type idea. Or is getting to the place of Zen. And I'm just zened out, and no matter what's happening, I'm just in my little mode right here. And, and no matter what's going on, I can control my attitude, and I'm in that thing. And you see that. We have this today. And Paul's engaging both of those philosophies. And they're asking, verse 21, can you teach us some new thing? Because they were always looking for some new thing. And, we, and that sounds familiar, doesn't it? People are always, I mean, I mean some of you are going to get out here and I've got to check out, i got to check my Facebook app to just see what's happened since I was in church for the last hour and a half or whatever, you know? But something's got to happen. Is it the news? I need the new thing. What's the new this? And when you see this in science, or the new study says this, and everything that our parents ever thought was wrong because someone did a study in college about this and, and interviewed 12 people and they all conferred with them and, you know, peer review, so it's right, right? And so, so all that you know, and we're always looking for the new thing. And, there, and, and, I, and I don't want to sound anti-intellectual in this because a lot of this new studies and science and advancements, stuff like that, wonderful, helpful things. Often when it comes to social sciences, it's not that great. But there's something. But what happens is, so he's dialoguing with them. And they invite him to go to the Areopagus. This is the Hill of Ares. Ares was the Greek god of war. So this was the hill of Ares, or as you see translated in some places, Mars Hill. And so, and then we, they go there. So this is more of a public thing, kind of almost, they were, they were the body that did, did, made all the decisions for religious things and gods going back into the Greek culture. So it really wasn't as binding in this Roman world, but it still, it was kind of a, you know, it sounded nice, but this is a little bit of a trial here in a formal way that Paul's going up to. And I want you to note Paul's starting point. So he goes and meets with them. And he says, Men of Athens, in verse 22, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. This is the understatement of the century here. Now the word religious there, the same Greek word, can kind of have two different meanings. It can mean you're very spiritual people. You're very spiritually minded people. Or it could mean you're a very superstitious people. Now one sounds really nice. I'm very spiritual. I'm very superstitious is kind of the more baser way. So which way did Paul mean it? Spiritual or superstitious? Exactly. It's, it's a double entendre. You know, like, my, you're looking swell today. <laughs> you know, and you're like, what does that mean? You know, are you trying to get a jab in? Are you trying not? But it's a very polite way, and it's actually kind of beautiful. He's kind of being polite, but at the same time, you're very religious people, aren't you? You know, and, and so, so he's kind of getting that in there, but he's engaging their worldview. And I noticed, as I looked at all your idols, all your statues, there's this one to the unknown God. This was the just-in-case God. You know, just in case we missed one, we got one here for that. And as it says, so they're worshiping something they don't even know. I mean, we know we're ignorant of something, but we're going to worship it just in case, right? Um, and so, 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 so he is engaging them. He's not starting out with, hey, Deuteronomy chapter 9, let's start. He starts with engaging them at the foundational level of their worldview. He's engaging them there. And so he's being as courteous as possible, but without giving up truth to this unknown God. 
So he is, now, here's where liberals go at this. They love to, this is why this passage is important, and we're not going to get, I can't dig into this too much, because one, I'm a lightweight in it, but, and because we don't have time. But like, a lot of liberals like to do, the people that are like, oh, Christianity, all, we, can't we all get together and coexist? I mean, that's what Paul did, right? He found where we could, you know, get a bumper sticker on all of our chariots that say coexist, and we can all get along. See, he found common ground with, that, with them and all their idols, right? No, 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 no. That's not what's going on here. He's not finding common ground. His message of the gospel is not changing. He's only changing the way he presents it in a different manner. So he's, he's not building bridges with other religions. He's building bridges with their worldview so that he can lead them from those idols to the God of the universe. Okay? Huge difference. So what he is finding common ground in is that mankind is naturally religious people you can't take away this religious impulse of uh, 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 in humans i mean they are humans are even someone who who would that that would it be agnostic or whatever they're saying ah you know there's probably some higher power out there and even those that say there's not a divinity they end up believing in like aliens and weirdo stuff or some spirit or, or 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 energy in the world or force or something they have something in there because we're naturally religious people and he's finding common ground in that he's saying we have common ground in this that you're religious you can't take this out of people just like you can say well i'm never going to eat again you still have hunger because you're human So this search for God that all humans have is something he acknowledges and applauds. And that's a good thing. No matter who you're talking to, it's a good thing to say, you know, I can see that you really care for your kids. Or I can really see that you care for society and and those that are oppressed. And, you know, I really appreciate that you're concerned that you want people to be educated or or that that there's something there that is uh, something to be affirmed and recognized. They are image bearers of God. No matter they, whether they recognize him or not, they are image bearers of that God. But Paul doesn't leave them there. He shows them that their current solution is not working, that it's not real. And as Francis Schaeffer would say back in the 70s, he's blowing the roof off. He's taking their, their mind and popping this roof off here. So he questions their conclusion. Okay, you've got all these gods of, you know, you got Aphrodite, you got Nike, uh, the, the, you know, that's the god that, uh, the lady god they had a picture of, and uh, of victory, and uh, athletes would worship them, you know, she kind of had a shoe business on the side, I'm, I'm joking, um, uh, and, and, you know, so, so, I mean, you have all these different gods, how's that working for you? You have this victory, you have this god, they even had a god to the sewer system, um, they had gods to everything, you know, you have this God for this, this God for that, and by your powers combined, Captain Planet comes out, right? I mean, you have all these different gods that come together. And, and so he's saying, how's that working for you? Where, where does this come? This is kind of like going to our culture and saying, okay, happiness, is. you got that house? Are you happy now? You sacrificed everything. You drove your family away so that you could get that job. Are you satisfied now? And he's con, 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 con the, the chips in. But what he does, and we see in verse 24 now, is he proclaims the greatness of God. So he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hand, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And so he starts at creation, and he's proclaiming the greatness of God. So he starts at creation, this fundamental truth that God is the creator. Now, really, what he's doing, and when you start at creation, and creation is such an important thing, because when he starts at the created God, he is, he, is, he is dismantling the philosophies of the Stoics and the Epicureans. So the Stoics that are pantheists, or the Epicureans that are basically practical atheists, there's a God and he created you, and you're accountable to him. This declaration denies the premises of both philosophies. It, it totally shakes the foundations of both of those worldviews. That being created beings all, and so what he does so you, you live in terror and always trying to appease these gods and figure things out. So he says he made from one man, verse 26, every nation of every mankind to live on the ace and have determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place or the bounds of their habitation. You, God created everything and he created you. And guess what that means to humans? You as being created beings of God, you are image bearers of him, therefore you have intrinsic value. Creation elevates the identity of every human. They have intrinsic value because they are created by God in God's image. And so this cuts off several things. And he says you're from one man or one race. So believing in creation should cut out any seed or thought of racism for Bible believers that would believe that God created he, them, male and female. We're all of one blood. We're all of one race. There's not multiple races. There's one race, the human race. There's different ethnicities. But there is one. And each of them have intrinsic value. And what he's saying is that all your philosophies, all your gods, you have a truncated view of God. And what Paul is basically doing is saying, let me give you some big God theology to fix you here. That this God, who I'm presenting, that you're saying is unknown, that in ignorance, he is so big. He created everything. You're trying to figure him out in all your intellectual stuff with all your Aristotles and Plato's and all these different uh, philosophers. Your pea brains can't wrap around him. He is so big. He is transcendent. He is outside of time, outside of minds. He is so big our brains can't all, even altogether can't wrap around him. But then he's saying he's not only huge and transcendent, but he's also eminent. He is involved even down to where we live and our times. He is this God. And so really, Paul is presenting to these, the world, the, the, the intellectual superpowers of the world, the simple lesson that most of our kids that are in E-Kids could say, that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and he created he them male and female. And this is when you say, well, I can't talk to those people that are, you know, all that apologetic stuff. Well, you, if you're a bank teller, you don't spend time studying all the counterfeit options. You study the real things. So the real thing is just God created. God created he men, male, male and female. And this obliterates both extremes of this philosophical world. The true God is a big God. 
He's not some tribal God that only looks after water or plants or thunder or prosperity or athletics or fertility or love or war like Ares or Aphrodite or Zeus or any. He's not one of those gods. He's a God who is the God. And so when you're doing all this to get to this God and this God for this and this God for that, you know what the end of the God of the universe is? Himself. Number verse 27 now, they seek God and they'll find their way towards him. That the end is not getting this or this or that from God, but getting God himself and being reconciled to him. This is the end. The real God is himself the end. God is greater than anything you could have ever imagined, he's saying to them. In verse 28, it says, in him, he says this, he says, as it's been said, in him we live and move and have our being. Now, you'll probably notice in your Bible, that's in quotations. You know what verse of the Bible, what passage, what scripture Paul is quoting there? In him we live and move and have our being. Uh, we're doing a minor prophets in Sunday school, and we don't know a lot about them. I don't know a lot about them. So maybe it's one of the minor prophets because I'm not familiar with that one, right? Or is that buried somewhere in Leviticus or something? No. He, he is quoting a hymn to Zeus that was written about 600 B.C. Paul is engaging with their own literature. And then he goes on and he says, as even some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. He's using one of their poets. Um, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not as familiar with where that poem is, but he also quotes that poem uh, in, in the book of Titus. So, He's saying, your God's too small. You've got these things, and he engages with their own literature on this. But then he goes on and he says this. We being his offspring, we ought not to think the divine is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed with art. Basically, your God's too small. He's not like that. From the time ignorance, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Get this. God commands every people any, everywhere to repent. Repent of what? The idolatry. Because he's fixed a day in which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. So he's going to say, there is a day of judgment coming. But see, you know what? You're not accountable. Well, I believe in a higher power. There's a higher power out there. A higher power doesn't say there's a day of judgment coming. The God of the universe, the God who is, says there's a day of judgment. There is an end. There is death and judgment coming. And so what he does then at the end here is verse 31 of the following. He points them to Christ. Because there's a fixed day in which he will judge the world by a man whom he's appointed. And on this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he proves to Jesus, the risen, and, and the proof of Jesus being God and able to do this is the resurrection. The resurrection is the theme of this, you know? It wasn't until like, you know, 1900 years passed before people start doubting the resurrection, right? Christians always believed a bodily resurrection. So he proclaims Jesus. So a church on the move meets people where they are and leads them to Jesus. He points them to Jesus. He proclaims Jesus. So, so the question is not, well, hey, let's all take all of our evidence in our apologetics class and our 
arguments for God and our arguments for your worldview and let's stack them all up and down and let's see which one has a better argument or a better explanation and let you be the judge of that. No, 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 no. The question that Paul comes to is, what are you going to do with Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Are, are you believing Jesus as the son of God who died on the cross for sins? Because if you're not, you're going to be judged by him. So he's not, he's not, he's, he's engaging them, but he's taking them straight to Jesus and the person of Jesus. And he's demanding a verdict. You need to repent of this idolatry. Now, everybody's fine with this talk as long as you remain theoretical. As long as we talk philosophy and this and this and this and religious this and this option and that option. But when he demands a verdict that if you don't repent, you're going to be judged. That's when they get upset. And when he claims the resurrection, it says there in the last two verses, last three verses, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst, and some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius, the Aragopagite, the woman named Marius, and others with them. So he has some reactions here. Some mock him. Some are delay and some believe. And that's really what we should expect when we share the gospel, when we reach people that are far from God in a culture that is different than, uh, that doesn't hold a biblical worldview or doing cross-cultural type communication. Some are going to mock, and that's okay. Expect it. Some are going to believe, and that's wonderful. And some are going to delay. They just need, hey, let's talk about this again. Let, let, let's, let's, let's set up another time. to. Can we read the Bible together? Why don't you come visit? Th- this is the, and I also want you to notice is they joined, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed. That there was a little bit of come with me, come and see aspect of this. That, that some, there are some people that will start attending before they actually believe. They'll, they'll join a small group or they'll get involved in something or they'll come to a Bible study before. Before they come to that, or they, I really like this person or this program that they have, and and that's okay. They just need some more time to work with that. And but there's there's those three. So I ask you, in your response, how you're working in your culture, in our culture here in this town, are you having some of these reactions? Are some people mocking you? And if not, you might not be presenting it right. If they're all like, oh yeah, you're one of us. Um. So, this happens. Uh, a great example of this happened this week, Friday. Uh, so, we had school started this week, and uh, um, so, as, I, as normal, I give my little I'm available to talk in Bible class talk, and um, um, we had a student transfer from another uh, middle school in the area and was in science class. Science class claiming, starting at creation, claims of God, that there's an end to this, that God created and he is over this. And the student was struck by that and goes and asks to say, hey, can I come talk to you? And at first I'm like, it's a long week, it's a busy week, there's a ton of stuff going on. I'm like, oh, can this just wait till Monday? I'm like, no, no, no. And he's like, had questions about reincarnation, if God created this, how do we come back? And so we got to talk about that and meet where he's at and talk about these questions and bring it to not reincarnation but a resurrection and which resurrection are you going to be part of and make a decision there. 
And he's in the let's wait and see. And there might be someone that's in that place right now. And there might be someone that's like, I'm ready to believe that. And that would be awesome. But the gospel, really what Paul's doing is doing exactly what Jesus did, that the gospel's always been inclusive. That they're simply just following the example of Christ. That his ministry is wanting people from all walks of life to come to him. So be gracious to teach and reach where they're at. Because God reached us where we were at. Reach them in the midst of their idolatry. Because you know what? God reached you and me in our idolatry. And it takes a long time sometimes. I would say that there may be one or two, but for the most part, most people don't respond the first time they hear the gospel. Sometimes it takes a long time of conversation and talk and hearing the message over and over and over before God turns the light on. So Jesus and is, meets us where we're at in the midst of our idolatry, but he is too gracious to leave us there. And so as we c- close, I ask you, what's your relationship to culture? Are you enamored with it? Are you wanting to extract yourself from it? Or do you want to engage it for the sake of the gospel? Are you worldly? Or are you a missionary? Are you at home in this world? Are you repulsed by it, or are you burdened to reach it? And you may need to repent of worldliness. You may need to repent of your lack of love for those the, the lost to get the gospel to them. Um, can you find common ga- ground and engage someone that has a different opinion of you than you, that doesn't hold to the foundation of the Bible? I hope you learn to do that. I hope you're able to do that. I hope you're gracious enough to do that. I hope you're able to be a good neighbor in the midst of that and that you'll present to them a big God who's bigger and the answer to everything they're looking for and bigger than the, all the idols that they're trying to come up with lesser gods and that you call them to repent of the judgment, repent because judgment's coming. And so a church on the move meets people where they are and leads them to Jesus. Let's have heads bowed, eyes closed, and let's respond. As we're responding, we all need to just take some time. Maybe you need to repent of worldliness. Maybe you need to um, repent of your lack of compassion for the world and those that you see all the time, that you've just been all ticked about culture, but you're not doing anything to reach it. Maybe you need a purpose to try to find some common ground not to compromise the gospel, but to build a bridge to reach somebody with it. Maybe you got a neighbor, someone you work with, that you need to do some of what Paul's doing here in this passage with them. Maybe you need to repent of the desire to want to be admired or fit in in this world. You may be here and you need to believe on the God who created everything, the God who sent his son to die for your sins. Take your 
payment for your sins on the cross, complete, total, accepted to God, and believe and depend upon him to remove your sins from you to give you right standing with God. May you might be need to do that. You may need to be saved. Our Father, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for the example of Paul. Lord, I pray that you'd take these truths, and there's so much more in this passage that we barely touched, Lord, but I ask that you would make us a church that meets people where they are and leads them to Jesus. Guide us in this, equip us for it, give us a heart for it, change our heart, change our minds, change our affections, how we see our neighborhood. Help us not to be enamored with the world and its idols and our community. Help us not to be extracted from it and trying to stay as far away from it as possible. But Lord, help us to engage it for the sake of reaching it with the good news of Christ. Would you make us this type of people? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you have a wonderful afternoon and take some time. I'm glad you're with us today. And take some time in fellowship together now at this time. God bless. You're dismissed.